Welcome to the CCF Podcast. We're a campus ministry at Truman State University. This podcast features sermons from our weekly worship services. Thanks for listening. Hey, uh, we're doing a series on the Sermon on the Mount. Also, one thing about me, if you don't know, is I have a thing for titles. So... This is uh, Romans, Rabbi's Righteousness, a Sermon on the Mount introduction in three chapters, or She Kisses My Boo-Boos, She Braids My Hair, or We Are the Loving Kindness Ones, or You Have Heard It Was Said That You Would Destroy the Sith, Not Join Them. Uh, Here's a little introduction to me. Boom. This is me. I am 38 years old. Believe it or not, I've been on staff for 14 years. Um, That's me on the left with Jesus. And then up in the right, that's my wife, Leanne. We have been married, we're almost 17 years here in just another week or two. Um, This is a picture of her on the Sea of Galilee. We went to Israel this summer, and I just really love that picture a lot. She's really wonderful. And then uh, my three boys down here, Briggs on the right, Jack in the middle, Graham on the left. uh, That's at our house. They're having ice cream. And uh, they're also in the back, and that's, that's me. Okay, uh, I'm going to intro our intro. Tonight is the intro to the Sermon on the Mount. I'm going to intro this just a little bit. I'm going to give you a little disclaimer. Um, you are going to hear some historical details, and I need you to brace yourselves. You're going to hear some information. I'm not really a big, like, I, I don't think that preaching and sermons are just a chance to dump a bunch of information into your brain. That's not really usually my MO. Um, but, you know, we're setting the stage. It's, oh, she's, she's like, I, don't, I can't do these historical details. I'm oh, sorry, I'm just messing with you. <clears throat> She'll probably be at the BSU tomorrow night. <laughs> I'm just kidding. No, I love the BSU. I love the BSU. Um, So you're going to be getting some information, uh, some details, uh, and I hear you saying already, don't bore us with your details, and okay, I won't, but then you also have to realize that when you hear things like abolish and fulfill the law, you've heard that phrase before, or when you hear things uh, like the gospel of the kingdom, those mean actually something specific in their time and place, and it's likely not about the Christian theology that you have been told that it is or that you're used to. So I just want to get a few things out here tonight to set the stage, and then I will not bore you for the rest of the semester. So can you be bored with me for a night? Yes! Are we excited about being bored? So Matthew 5 begins this way. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain and sat down, and when his disciples came to him, he opened up his mouth and taught them. By the way... This is, this is the mount. There it is. That's the place. Uh, it's kind of a big hill. Don't picture the Rocky Mountains. They don't look like that over there. They look like that. And the Sea of Galilee is right there. It's quite beautiful. Um, it's nice. It's quaint. Um, that's, that's the place. Um, we got crowds. We don't know anything about these crowds. If you just jump right into the Sermon on the Mount, like if you skip the first four chapters of Matthew, because it's like the boring, you know, context stuff, and you just get right to Jesus preaching. You don't know anything about the crowds. Uh, And so first, for the first part, we're going to go back to Matthew 4 for a hot second to get a sense of who are these people? Like, why are there crowds here? 
Do we just assume that we know that? And what is it that Jesus is saying that makes them want to listen? They're following him around to hear what he has to say. So here we go. Part one, chapter one, Romans. We, he went through all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. Now, I'm sure, I'm going to give you a chance to show off your smarts. I'm sure you know what the word gospel means, how it translates. Do you guys know? Say it if you know it. Very proud of you. Good news. Some of you may even get bonus points. Do you know the Greek word for it? Who said that? Conrad. You're not allowed to talk for the rest of the class. <laughs> Conrad already knows everything I'm about to say. Um, okay. Did you know uh, that this word, gospel, this word euangelion, did you know that it's, it's not originally a Christian word? It's, it's, it's not even a Bible word originally. Did you know that? Matthew did not invent it for Jesus. Jesus did not invent it for himself. This word gospel was already in the vocabulary. It was a word long before Jesus arrived on the scene. And it always accompanied, though, talk of kingdoms. Kingdoms had gospels. And the gospel of the kingdom was the proclamation that you would tell everybody to tell everyone why you ought to put your faith in the person who is ruling this kingdom. The gospel is, here's, here's who's in charge, and here's why you should put your faith in them. So Alexander the Great, have you heard of Alexander the Great? He had a kingdom. It was Greece. Am I get, telling anybody anything they don't know? Remember, he wanted to unite the whole ancient world, and he wanted to rule it. That was a really big place, a really big kingdom. So how would you do that? How would you just practically uh, rule a place that you don't, have, you don't have enough soldiers, you can never have enough soldiers to actually enforce your rule in all of these places. They'd be way too spread then. So how do you establish your rule? What is your gospel? And his gospel was this. His gospel is essentially a strategy was, we'll just give the people so many benefits that they'll never want to go anywhere else. And so there were these four pillars that were entertainment. He had the theater. Good theater. Education, they called the gymnasium back then. It's kind of confusing, but that's what it was. Sports, athletics, professional sports, big arenas. Yeah, you could go and get some real good entertainment on a Sunday afternoon. Healthcare, great healthcare. I'm not kidding. Give me your loyalty, he said, and I will provide everything you need. Fun, safety, security. Julius Caesar, you've heard of him? Yes? He had a kingdom. It was Rome. Good job. Not a trick question. He also had a gospel proclamation. His gospel proclamation was called the Pax Romana. Have you ever heard of this before? P-A-X Romana. It went like this. Piety, war, victory, peace. Say it with me. Piety, war, victory, peace. Like you mean it. Come on. Piety, keep the faith of your forefathers. Conquer your enemies through war to achieve your victory. And then, you know, maintain peace for whoever's still alive, if they're lucky enough to be alive. Now, when I say pillars of kingdoms, gospels of kingdoms, with words like entertainment, education, athletics, healthcare, piety, the faith of our founding fathers, war, victory, peace, does that sound... Familiar? Does that feel familiar at all? 
to you and the place, the kingdom that you live in as a pillar or even a beacon of this society? Polly G's with me. Hear me. I'm not saying that your American life is inherently evil, okay? I'm not. Education's great. Universities, great. It's the world that we live in here at Truman. The problem, though, with these gospels and these kingdoms is it's not for the people that are in. It's not for you who are at the university. It's not for the guys playing professional sports. The problem is the price that is paid by those who are excluded or even more to the point uh, by those who are oppressed on whose backs are built this kingdom. Now, I know, of course, we don't have any problems like that. We would never build our kingdom on the backs of oppressed peoples. But, you know, back then. I don't want to get on a soapbox, okay? I don't. I'm not going to. So I'm going to leave you to wrestle with those things in the context of the kingdom in which you now live and whose gospel you are taking in at all times. I'll leave you to wrestle with that. What I do want to point out by way of setting the stage for the Sermon on the Mount is this, because we're prepared. We're going to be in this thing all semester. I want to point this out. When Jesus comes announcing the gospel of the kingdom in Matthew 4, it is not a bunch of spiritual pie in the sky. It is not about how to go somewhere else when you die. It really is a matter of your allegiance, the way that you live your life in the here and now. It is a matter of how who we put our faith in will direct us to live the lives that we have. How do they rule? What does power mean where you come from? How do you live in that place? What does it mean to be a citizen? How do things flourish in the kingdom that you are a part of? And so here's the contrast, okay, between the gospel of the kingdom of the heavens, the kingdom of God, and our other gospels. As my friend Marty said on our trip in Israel this summer, you'll meet him later this semester, he said, Caesar had the gospel of Pax Romana, you remember it? Piety, war, victory, peace. And Paul had the gospel of Christ, grace, peace. The Sermon on the Mount, I think, then, is a sort of manifesto for this kingdom, this kingdom which is entirely a matter of grace, right, Polly? In Matthew 4, Jesus has gone about, he's healing the sick, he's casting out demons, he's ministering to those that the kingdoms of Alexander and Caesar have seen fit to trample on and to discard. And so all of these people, along with the poor in spirit and the mourners and the meek and the peacemakers and all of the rest, they are all gathered to hear him. And of course, they are gathered to hear him because Jesus is apparently announcing a kingdom that might have room and maybe even blessing even for them. So it's with all of these kinds of people within earshot that he's here on this hill by the Sea of Galilee, and he gathers his disciples, and he speaks all of these words that we're going to be hearing this semester, these words that are a way of laying out uh, a kind of values, uh, the rules of citizenship. It's kind of a way of laying out the aims of this kingdom. Like I said, it's a manifesto, but I think they're more than that, because I think the Sermon on the Mount is laying out a vision of what it means to be truly Righteous, and that's another religious word we're going to have to like take off the shelf and blow the dust off of, but about what it means to be the kind of person that God is looking to partner with as his kingdom breaks its way into the world to turn upside down the kingdoms of Caesar, 
and Alexander, but definitely not anywhere that we live. Jesus is declaring a new thing is here. Real power, different power, and it wants to turn upside down not only the kingdom that we live in, but also your own lives. It has something to say about you and me. So that's the stage. It's a really strange mix, actually, if you think about it. We've got a culture that's rooted in Greece. It's a Greek culture, and it's ro- ruled by a Roman ruler. And the people that Jesus are, is talking to are Jews. Weird. Chapter 2, rabbis, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. How are we doing? Are we doing okay? Do we need to take a deep breath? Have you had too many details, too much boring history? No? Noah? You're good? He's fine. Okay. Jesus was a Jew. Do you know this? Okay. That means something. That means everything, actually, for what he thought about and the way that he thought about things and the people that he talked to and the places that he went. He was a teacher. Call him a rabbi. He was recognized as a teacher in the community that he was in. He was not the only rabbi. Do you know this? There were other teachers. Okay, different voices. And as a rabbi, Jesus was engaged in a lively discussion with his contemporaries. And I mean lively, okay? Like, they're not like us, where it's like, wait for your turn to talk and be polite. Like, we were in Israel, and I was at the Temple Mount. And in, on the west, you guys know what the west wall is of the Temple Mount? It's where the Jews go to pray because it's the closest they can get to what used to be the temple. Um, and so they go there. And just off of the wall, there's a tunnel. Only the men can go in there. And I went in there, and in the tunnel, they have all of these cabinets where they keep the scrolls of Torah, where they keep the Hebrew scriptures. And it's like a study room, and it's kind of like a church service going on in there, except for, like, it's a lot of commotion. Like, there are people up against the wall, like, praying fervently like this. There are people, like, sitting, murmuring the scriptures to themselves, trying to memorize it. There's a table two feet away right here of a bunch of old men that are just yelling at each other in Hebrew. I'm assuming they're yelling about whatever it is that they are reading and discussing, discussing, okay? So this is the kind of culture that, where they're having these discussions. And the perennial question that always came up among the rabbis was this, how do you interpret rightly? How do you rightly interpret the law? Because do you know anything about the commandments? Does anybody know the number, like how many there are? Conrad? I told you, 613 commands, yes? And the Jewish desire to abide by these commands was real, and it was strong. And I want to clarify some bad uh, information that you might have, some bad theology, okay? In the Jewish mind, you do not keep the law to earn your salvation. That is not what they are doing. No Jew believes that. You know what salvation is for the Jew? Deliverance from Pharaoh, from slavery. Do you know the order of events? First, they were delivered. Then they went through the sea. Then they went to Mount Sinai. There God gave them the law. The order of events was not God shows up to like somebody in Egypt who's a slave, and he's like, hey, here's all these commands. When you keep them perfectly, I'll be back to save you. Bye. That's not how the order of events goes, okay? So the question is, why do they have the law? It did two things for them. You can find them in Exodus 19, right before all the Ten Commandments come into your Bible. They talk about priesthood and talk about being a treasured possession, okay? This is, the two, this is why they have the law. The first reason, it gives them a way to live out their priestly calling, which is another religious word, but essentially it's, I need you to be different. I need you to live differently so that people will see the kind of God that I am. 
And that really matters, okay? And so that's the first thing. And the second thing is, I need to give you a way to love me because you are my treasured possession. We're getting married here at this mountain, and I want to give you a way to love me. So there's a, friend that Marty tell, or there's a story that my friend Marty tells me about being on one of these trips in Israel. And they're there. This is not the trip that I was on, a different trip. And they're in Jerusalem, and there's a Jew named Moshe who is there with this group. Like, he lives there. He's not on the tour. And there's a Christian. I'm sure they meant well enough. And they went up to this Jew named Moshe, and they said to him, why do you keep putting yourself under the burden of the law when Jesus can set you free? And Moshe said, freedom? Burden? How could loving my beloved, capital B, beloved, God, how could loving my beloved ever be a burden to me? Okay, so when the Jews see Torah, they're rejoicing. You should have seen it at the West Wall when they pull the scroll out of the closet. Everybody's up and they're jumping around. They're singing and dancing. They go up and they put their hand on the scroll and then they touch it to their lips because it's sweet as honey on their lips. And they're all jumping around singing. They are ecstatic for the law, for Torah, okay? We are the ones that have a distorted view about like, oh, you stupid Jews, don't you know? You just don't got to try hard anymore. Like, you can just go to heaven or whatever. Okay, back to the Jewish law. It's extensive. How many commands? 613. There are always going to be questions then about what's written. Like, how does it apply here or there? Or like, what about in this circumstance or that circumstance? So like if Torah says, don't do any work on the Sabbath, it does. You know this? But it also says that if your or your neighbor's ox falls down, then you have to help pick it up. It also says that. What do you do when your ox falls down on the Sabbath? It's a real question. Not silly, not trivial. Because if you leave it there, then you break the ox rule. But if you pick it up, then you break the Sabbath rule. And if you say that helping it stand up really isn't work, my question is, have you ever tried to lift up an ox before? So there are contradictions there are times when things contradict. There are times when things are ambiguous. And so the teachers of the law in Jesus' day, they gave many, many, many teachings and rulings and interpretations. They become known, here's a fun word for you, say halakha. This is what Jesus is usually arguing about with Pharisees, not the Hebrew Bible. They're arguing about the interpretation of the Hebrew Bible. So Torah, you know this word? It's the five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Those are the Torah. That word means teaching. Halakha, say halakha. It means walking the path. So the halakha was there. These are the rulings that they gave you. Hey, you want to know how to apply Torah to your daily life? When somebody's ox falls in the road, I'm going to tell you. Here's an interpretation. Are you still with me? I promise this is relevant to the Sermon on the Mount. Here's the thing with interpretation. People disagree. In Judaism, it's not a bug. It's a feature. We, we are the kind of people, we like to assume that everything in the Bible must be neat and clean and face value, that it should never create any tension or contradiction, that it should all just fall into place. But with ox and Sabbath, that is not always the case. There is tension, maybe even what you would call contradiction. And not just ox and Sabbath. Like, this is true of much bigger questions and issues than that. Uh, like, you guys, you guys know about Nahum and Jonah, right? Obviously. Nahum, 
they, they, they both, Nahum and Jonah are both looking at a very important question. And that question is, what is God's heart towards our enemies, towards the people who have done the worst things to us? This is an important question, right? This isn't just old school history. Like, this is a live question for any of us who have enemies. And Nahum seems convinced that God really wants to destroy the very wicked people of Nineveh. But the book of Jonah, it's fully aware of this same wickedness. And it's like, no, God actually wants to mercifully restore those people. Destroy? Restore. Probably an important distinction to recognize and argue about. And equally important to recognize that both are in the Bible. And even more important to recognize that the Bible does not then have a third voice that's deciding which one is right. It just leaves room for both of those apparent contradictions. So, they may feel uncomfortable about that? A little bit? No? Yes? Yes? Cora is uncomfortable? I'm a little uncomfortable? The Bible has contradictions? What? 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 That's what? <laughs> yep, it makes us uncomfortable. Disagreeing, arguing, having to ask questions. But with Torah, with the Bible that Jesus was talking about, this is a primary aspect of what it means to actually walk and live faithfully before God. Like, we have to handle these things. We have, we have to. Okay. So, coming around to our scripture. In Jesus' day, when it came to the different rabbinical interpretations, their rulings and stuff, they had expressions for agreement and dissent. If you had completely gotten something wrong, so if you're a teacher and I'm another teacher and I'm listening to what you say and I think you completely get it wrong, you got it totally backwards. Like if, for example, you're like, hey, you should just leave that distressed ox to rot so that you don't commit a personal holiness foul on Sabbath, somebody might say you have abolished Torah. You have abolished Torah because of your stupid interpretation. That's dumb. You're very wrong. But if you had correctly interpreted the law, in their mind, maybe saying, you know what? You could probably set aside like the mandate against work to alleviate the suffering of your neighbor and your neighbor's ox. Then you know what they might say if you correctly interpreted it? You have fulfilled Torah. It's a matter of interpretation, not just by what you say, but by what you do. So when Jesus said, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets, I have not come to abolish them but to fulfill them, I'm sure that those of you who grew up in certain kinds of churches have all kinds of ideas about what that's supposed to mean. But let me tell you, what he meant was not that he came to do a whole checkbox of like a whole list of requirements to appease a God who's just waiting there to like crush you if you look at a woman lustfully. That's not what he meant when he said he came to fulfill the law. He meant that he is there among those Jews in that time, and still it's, it's relevant for us if we can see through it all, He meant that he was there to show us with his words and his actions the truest, deepest meaning and intent of the heart of God in Torah, especially concerning your relationships. This is much of what the Sermon on the Mount is about. And so when, if you're reading it, you're like, oh, Jesus came to keep all these rules because I know that I can't. It says says to do them all, but like really it's a gotcha thing because actually you're a piece of crap and you can't do it anyway. No, that's not what this is about. Jesus is showing us a way that he expects us to follow. You going to follow perfectly? Of course not. Does he still expect you to put one foot in front of the other and try to follow in the way that he is leading? Absolutely. This is what it looks like. Look at what I say. Listen to what I say. Look at what I do. This is what it means to fulfill the intent of the scriptures. 
And it really does matter because when the Pharisees are abolishing the law, like it's, it's, it's not just a matter of like having the wrong idea because it leads to the way that you treat people, right? I've, okay, let me go a little further. Many Pharisees, uh, oh, well, here's, here's another question. So since we have to decide, there is no getting around it. Like we have to interpret, right? We got to decide what we're going to do. We have to basically abolish or fulfill with the way that we live our lives. There has to be some kind of a guiding principle. Like, how do you decide between the ox and the Sabbath? What's your underlying, do you guys know do any Bible nerds here? Your hermeneutic. You know this? Your principle for interpretation. What filter do you look through? What in the end matters the most is really the question. Many Pharisees were convinced that what ultimately mattered most was just like strict obedience. And they were so concerned that they should never break a law that they did what was called building a fence or a hedge putting a hedge around the rulings, around the law, and the, or these rulings were the fence, okay? So what they did was they were like, oh, we got to make sure we never get close enough to actually breaking what Scripture says. This is what's in the Bible. We don't want to get anywhere close to that, so we're going to build a big old force field around it that's stricter and stricter rules just to make sure that we never actually break one of the, one of the real laws. And so their main concern was just preventing transgression. Don't do a bad thing, Okay? Whatever happens, don't do something wrong. The problem, do you know the problem with this? Is that their growing concern for strict obedience often caused them to just completely pass by and overlook and ignore the outcasts, the unclean, the hurting people around them. Now hear me, it is not wrong to be concerned to follow Torah if you're a Jew. It's really not. We should not turn up our nose at that. It is your way to love your beloved. But it does become a problem. I'm going to say this next part a little bit slowly. does become a problem when your desire to be devoted becomes a twisted, almost militant adherence to a bunch of pious rules. And when your fences to protect from danger become walls that keep the stranger out. Now, I'm sure that this is just a boring first century Judaism thing, and it means nothing for us today. It's not really relevant for us. But I do want to give one other very irrelevant historical detail here, okay? We always talk about the Pharisees like they're a bunch of idiots, like jokers who are just legalists, right? You know what Pharisee means? You guys know what the word means? Parushim. It means the pure ones. You know where Pharisees came from? Why they're there in history? Like, they didn't just appear out of the ether. There's a reason why certain groups come up feeling really strongly about certain things. When the extravagance, the, the, uh, the, the extravagance and the, the prosperity of those kingdoms that I was telling you about, with all of their entertainment and professional sports and great universities and excellent healthcare, if you just give your allegiance to us, right? When all of that stuff was popping up, and again, I know this is boring. It's got nothing to do with the world we live in today. But there were Jews who really wanted to take their call seriously to be set apart for God. And they wanted to resist the corruption of worldliness. They were called Hasidim. You say Hasidim. It comes from a Hebrew word, Hesed. You guys know this word? Was anybody here in 2017, 18? We did our word studies. Do you remember this word? Stephen Ground came and he talked about it. Hesed. Does anybody know this word? Conrad, don't talk. Anybody know it? Chesed 
is probably the most important characteristic of God in your Hebrew scriptures. Chesed is loving kindness. It's the thing that the Hebrew scriptures are always going crazy for. There's that psalm that says it like 50 times in a row. His steadfast love endures forever. 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 So the Hasidim were the loving kindness ones. That's what that means. And there were two factions. The Pharisees, the pure ones, the, the Parashim, and then the Zealots. Have you guys heard of Zealots before? Pharisees and Zealots, they want the same thing. They want to be faithful to God. They want to resist the kingdoms of the world, of Alexander or Caesar. They want to resist the corruption of Herod. And they thought, the Pharisees thought, well, the best way is we got to be devoted to our faith. we got to be devoted to our faith. we got to be devoted to the scriptures. we got to be Bible-believing. They didn't say those words. And the Zealots also agreed with that. They just thought a little violence couldn't hurt on the side. So when Jesus is talking to Pharisees about fulfilling the law, I'm going to bring this together for you. I'm going to say this also a little slowly so we get an accurate picture of who I'm talking about. Let the reader understand. We have a group of people who are so devoted to maintaining their purity and their devotion to God, but by adhering to the Bible in ways that end up demonizing and excluding a lot of people who weren't like them. Imagine that. Imagine a group of people whose name is supposed to be associated with the never-ending love of God, but whose interpretations and behavior end up associating them with exactly the opposite. That would be ironic and sad. Hear me. The Pharisees weren't all bad, okay? They weren't stupid. For us, for being a people like anybody identify as Bible-believing, like we love our Bible, 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 we love to talk about it all the time. We love to act like we really are committed to it. We love to act like we really live by it, right? For being a people who identify as Bible-believing, we would be put to shame by how little we know and actually care about the Bible compared to the Pharisees. There's a reason, I think, that Jesus, like he didn't hate them. He spent most of his time with them in the Gospels. Did you ever think about that? Like, read your gospel stories, and like 80% of them are with the Pharisees. Not because he thinks they're idiots. I think he sees something really good in them. Like, he sees a devotion. He sees a fervor, but he just sees that they're missing the key ingredient. They're missing what it means to fulfill. What was that? What was, what was the missing ingredient? Okay, last chapter, righteousness. For I tell you, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Anybody feeling scared? You think your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees? It's a funny thing to suggest that someone's righteousness could or should uh, exceed the Pharisees. They did everything right. Right? Well, I think it's more that they didn't do anything wrong than that they did everything right. You know what I'm saying? Sounds a little bit like, I don't know half of you half as well as I should like, and I like less than half of you half as well as you deserve. But what I mean is this. The righteousness of the Pharisees, as I kind of already talked about, was primarily defined by what was avoided. We don't go there. We don't listen to those things. We don't talk to those people. Uh, there are some, two authors, Ann Spangler and Lois Cherberg. They describe it beautifully like this. They said, many of the other rabbis in Jesus' day tended to focus on defining the minimum requirements of the law. 
defining the least good thing you can do and still stay within the boundaries. Their strategy was to keep tightening the minimums, hoping that doing so would bring people closer and closer to holiness, right? Set up the fortress walls, make sure we don't do anything wrong, keep those people out, and we will be holy. But about Jesus, Spangler and Terberg, they write, instead of focusing on minimums, he focused on maximums, speaking about the ultimate aims of the law. Like the other rabbis, Jesus' goal was to teach his followers how to do God's will, but he did it by bringing Torah to its greatest expression. So when Jesus said, you have heard it said, but I say to you, he was fulfilling Torah by asking not just what does it want to keep away from us, what does it want to nullify, what does it want to prohibit, but he asked what does the law want to bring to fruition? Like God in Genesis, what does the law want to call forth from nothing? What does it want to create and bless and call good? Like, just imagine your lives, like imagine, can you imagine a society? Like, if everybody always kept the Ten Commandments perfectly, can you imagine what would be different about that world? We wouldn't have contracts, we wouldn't have locks on our doors, lawyers, He wants to see what it can bring about. It's not just about avoiding something. It's about living in a certain way that brings something about. He wants us to ask the same things and then to actually be his disciples. A disciple is not somebody who sits around and thinks about what their teacher is teaching them. A disciple is somebody who walks where their master, where their rabbi walks. You know this Francis Chan thing about the cleaning your room? Where it's like, this is God when he was like, hey, I want you to clean your room. And you're like his kid, and you go away, and you come back, and he's like, did you clean your room? He's like, no, but we really thought about cleaning our room. It's like, okay, go clean your room. And they go away, they come back, and say, did you clean your room? No, but we learned what cleaning your room means in the Greek. <laughs> and he's like, go clean your room. And they come back, and they're like, we really decided that we're going to pray about cleaning our room. And he's like, no, go clean your room. That's what a disciple does. They follow wherever the rabbi is leading. He shows what it means to fulfill the law. So what does it mean? Okay, to the punchline. What does Torah's greatest expression look like? I bet you guys already know the answer. Jesus said it. He said, Matthew 22, on these two commandments hang all of the law and the prophets. That's your Bible. Everything in the law and prophets hangs on these two. You remember what they are? The first one, Derek said it on Sunday morning. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And then the second one is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Paul said it in Romans 13. You guys know Paul. You love Paul. He said the commandments are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And he said love is the fulfilling of the law. There you go. That's the fulfillment of the law. The right interpretation is when you lean into love. Paul also said something. What do you say? It's like, uh, if I have all the things and I know all the mysteries and the knowledge, but I don't have love, then I'm a what? A what? A, 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 a clanging, a noisy cymbal and a clanging gong. Do you know what a clanging gong is? It's a summoning bell that doesn't freaking summon anything. No one listens to it. No one comes running at the sound of it. No one cares how morally exemplar you are if you don't love. 
No one cares how right your theology is if you don't love. Without love, your moral perfection is immoral, and your right sound doctrine is heresy. The righteousness of the Pharisees that Jesus is talking about, it shows that you can be right about pretty much everything and still be way off. My kids love Despicable Me Too. There's, it's a terrible movie. <laughs> but there is a hilarious scene where little Agnes is reciting her line for the play. She's like keeping Gru up late. She's like, I got to practice my line. And he's like, okay, hurry up, let's hear it. And she's like, she kisses my boo-boos. She braids my hair. We love you, mommies, everywhere. Thank you. I couldn't even get it right. I'm so, I have abolished Toro. <laughs> but you know, like it is, and she gets every word right. It is entirely possible to do everything right and be like, what is that clanging gong? You can do everything right and still ruin relationships. And what's more, sometimes your insistence on doing everything by the book becomes the very thing that ruins them. That's the righteousness of the experts of the law and the Pharisees. True righteousness, though, what the Bible calls tzedakah, the Hebrew word, as God sees it, it always has the underlying essential component of, this is such a dry-sounding thing, but maintaining rightness in relationships. Basically, it's not just about moral perfection in your own soul. That's not what righteousness is about. It's about rightness, equity, goodness, fairness, grace in your relationships with others. So what the prophets and the law hang on is love. And if that sounds fluffy to you, remember that your rabbi's love took him to his crucifixion. He was crucified, ladies and gentlemen. And do you remember what being a disciple means? It means you go where he goes. Jesus came along, and he showed that fulfilling the law, like he didn't just talk about it, like in his very life he embodied this, that fulfilling the law was actually much simpler than all the halakha, but also way, way harder than the fine print suggested. Truly walking the path, the right halakha, is a matter of taking what is simultaneously the simplest and the most profoundly difficult way, which is to say... That keeping the law is a matter of love. Love for God, love for neighbor, especially the neighbor that you love to hate. Because the thing is that we all love right up to the point that we don't. We think pretty highly of ourselves, but we all reach the limit beyond which our own love will not take us. Sacrificial action, not just for the good of your friends and your family, but for strangers who have no way to benefit you, for your worst enemies who have wronged you. This is what everything in the law and the prophets and the Sermon on the Mount was always pointing us to. So says Jesus, so says Paul, so says John. Jesus preaches and embodies what it is. It should come as no surprise to us that no one really ever has succeeded at doing this in full measure or half measure, like we all find the limits of our own goodness sooner or later, so long as we keep the company of anyone. We all find the point beyond which love is still calling us, but which we just can't go on our own. And the great shock and mystery of it all 
is that Jesus' ultimate claim, it wasn't just to understand or interpret or live in the way. In the end, he claimed to be the way himself. I confess, I don't fully understand exactly what that means. But he claimed to be it. He claimed to be it, and he was it. All the way to his terrible death and through his glorious resurrection. And so what we need now, as we try to put one foot in front of the other this semester and hear the words of the Sermon on the Mount, what we really need is for our life to be hid with him, which is still a matter of love, simple and profound. I think Jesus knew <laughs> that even with instructions and being written down and like a million people saying a billion things about this over the course of history, uh, that we would still have the most terrible time trying to keep to this way, this fulfillment. So the good news is that he promised to go ahead and walk it with us. The trick now is we're going to take the hand, we're going to lean in and trust when it calls us to love others and even in a way that maybe feels like it's, oh gosh, is that making me break a rule or cross a fence? Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've come to show you the heart of God and Torah and the prophets, as it has always been, has said, steadfast love. For you, your neighbors, families, strangers, your enemies, love is the fulfillment of the law. And now, may we have eyes to see and ears to hear the Sermon on the Mount this semester. And may we have faith to live in the kingdom that Jesus proclaims. And may we have the courage to take his hand and let him lead us further up and further in, beyond the boundaries of where our own love can take us. Let's pray. Oh, Lord. One of the things that makes you you is that you are a God of history real places and real times with real people who had real hairstyles and certain vocabulary words and ideas about things that we don't have anymore. So, Lord, be merciful to us as we try to dig in, at least for once, into a little bit of what those hairstyles were like and what those vocabulary words meant and thoughts that they thought. Uh, not so that we can be big-brained and super cool historian gospel kids, uh, but so that we can just see a little bit more clearly what it is you're calling us to. Uh, Lord, have mercy as we try to follow where you are calling us. Certainly we'll be stumbling. Give us charity and grace for one another as we, in our own circles, wonder and argue and debate about this and that. Uh, knowing that somewhere in the midst of all of that, there you are. Thank you, Jesus.